What's up, what's up, people? Have a real banger of an episode to kick off my new season and celebrate the one-year anniversary of my pod that I launched in memory of Michael Brooks last February. That said, my guest today is Jason Storm, the author of the book Metamodernism, The Future of Theory. As you will hear, I've been wanting to interview Jason for quite some time due to my interest in the politics of Buddhist studies and philosophy of religion, among other subjects, which I talked about at quite some length in my last recording over at my substack entitled A Million Candles Burning. If you haven't listened to that yet, make sure to check it out. In any event, I hope you all enjoy the convo, and I'm looking forward to hear what you all think. Peace. All right, here we are. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Excellent. I can't begin to express uh, how excited I am to talk to you. Um, I knew I wanted to go out and actually interview you at some point over the course of this year. Uh, but once I saw the uh, the recent uh, tweet you sent out that uh, the when uh, your book got reviewed up at the Religious Studies Review uh, Journal, I was like, uh, no, I need to email him now because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm super excited about that. Um, and so congratulations on that. Oh, yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah. it's I've been really thrilled at the reception of that book so far. It's been exciting. I think there have been two uh, so far journal symposia. I think is that the plural of symposium? Anyway, symposiums uh, on the book. Uh, one of them was a religious studies review and the other one was in a journal I didn't know previously, but called Ad Fontes. Uh, and I think that there's supposed to be a third at some point, um, but I haven't heard details about that. And when that's it'll surprise me at some point, it'll pop up and then, you know, hopefully we'll see what they say. You know. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to see that too. And I mean, congrats too. I mean, the panel at the American Academy of Religion as well is a bit of a breakthrough for you guys that have been playing around with the metamodern term. So uh, that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I have been using the term metamodernism not as long as some other folks. I kind of backed into it rather than worked out from it. I mean, the book... Um, was originally peer-reviewed under the title Absolute Disruption, The Future of Theory. Um, I might have said The Future of Theory after postmodernism, but um, and then while people were reviewing it, they kept wanting to associate it with some kind of movement or another. <laughs> uh, they don't, people don't like, you know, if you're just standing on your own, they they don't really know how to take you. And so um, I kind of had to think or scramble around or think a little bit about what. Um, if there's an ism that I need to associate my work with, what is the most appropriate ism? And that is when I remembered some stuff I'd been reading, oh, you know, a very long time earlier uh, by this uh, Nigerian art historian, Moyo Okadiji, who was using the word metamodern um, and metamodernism to refer to artists who were trying to kind of break, fracture, subvert both postmodernism and modernism alike. And I resonated with that. So I, it's not that I um, wrote the book with an, ad, um, an idea of metamodernism uh, as a clearly defined object in hand first, um, but rather uh, I kind of came to it later as a second order description, um, really after the project was 95% done or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. I, actually, there's a great interview of you actually on the new book, uh, new books, I guess, in terms of podcasts, uh, where you give a some great background story as well in terms of how you, you developed that book and stuff like that. I'll actually go out and put that in the links as well uh, yeah. for people to go out and listen to. Um, but I thought it'd be fun because, I mean, the most recent article that I read of yours is um, uh, the uh, uh, the politics of Buddhist studies, which I just I was reading, actually, before jumping on the call with you. 
And um, I'm dying. I mean, because I'm actually a graduate of religious studies. I did my hmm. degree up at the Concordia University, and I focus most of my energy and time actually on East Asia. Uh, hmm. And eventually, I latched on to Robert Bella's work. Uh, so, I mean, this dimension to your work, I mean, I find so particularly fascinating and I'm kind of dying to know, uh, how you met Bernard Fall and how you eventually became your <laughs> master, well, your PhD supervisor, right there, if I yeah. understand correctly. Yeah. Uh, and what kind of a relationship you guys developed? I mean, cause his work has had a tremendous impact on me. So I'm dying yeah, to he, he's, he's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I came across him primarily first in terms of his work before I had met him as a person. So um, his he wrote a book called um, something like uh, Chan or Zen and the Rhetoric of Immediacy. Uh, yeah. This was probably in the 90s, I want to say, but I didn't come across it until uh, when I was in my master's program at Harvard. And it just it was amazing because he was. You know, and then I just grabbed all the other stuff that I could get my hands on that he'd written, and he had okay. written a quite sizable um, corpus of work at that point. And what was really exciting to me was that he was putting that um, Bernard was putting kind of post-structuralist or or broadly French philosophy in dialogue with Japanese and Chinese Buddhism. And given that my two interests had been Asian philosophy and continental philosophy, I was like, wow, he this this guy <laughs> is one of the few people that it, that is actually doing that. And so. Um, I applied to Stanford for the, for the PhD program, um, wanting to work with him and Carl Bielfeld, who was also there um, at that time, um, who who I had actually met previously, but had. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then I wasn't sure if I was going to get in, you know, how it is with grad schools. I think I um, I. I, I felt very lucky, but anyway, I, I got into Stanford and then, you know, started working with Bernard and then he got hired by Columbia not that long after I, I got to Stanford. Okay. So um, it was after I finished my course sequence, my, you know, a couple of years of doing coursework um, and then he took off. And so he was a little less involved in uh, the period of time from the end of my coursework until the first draft of the dissertation. Like I barely heard from him, but then he gave me really great feedback on the first draft of the dissertation. I revised it according to his feedback and, you know, he's been an inspiration and, and, you know, we, for, for a number of years, we would just meet up periodically. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, a really amazing scholar. And what this, you know, working with him became uh, my first book, which uh, the invention of religion in Japan, um, which uh, anyway, which uh, I wrote, you know, under his directorship, basically as a graduate yeah. student, although it was very hands off. So um, he gave me a lot of feedback late, but uh, and it was really valuable feedback. But it wasn't like one of those mentoring relationships where um, you are in the room with a person every day or something like that. We were on, you know, in different places. And, and honestly, I was already in Japan and France doing my field work anyway, um, after a point. And so, you know, even if he had stayed at Stanford, I wouldn't have seen him necessarily any more frequently. Yeah, yeah. but he's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And and for the yeah so and and drop uh, a a couple links to his work uh, in your in the comments if you oh or, you know, absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. I mean because I mean before actually going back to to school in in religious studies I was actually mm -hmm. a student of Albert Lowe up at the Montreal Zen mm -hmm. Center so oh, yeah, I was cool. I was I was knee deep you know kind of in this the the mystical East uh, before actually going back to university. So once I let, you know, and he actually encouraged me to go back to, to school and stuff like that. And he was very, you know, helpful. And some of his books got me to, to start thinking a little more scholarly and critically as well. But once I landed up at university and then obviously I started to get slammed with a much more historical and critical sort of 
uh, readings to go and, and stuff like that. And then obviously I came across Bernard Fall's book, uh, particularly Unmasking Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to be honest, I mean, it, it kind of destroyed me. I mean, it really ripped <laughs> or pulled the rug out from underneath my feet in terms of the ideas what I thought actually Buddhism was up to that point. Uh, so my, I guess my question is, is, I mean, cause you talk a bit about, uh, in some of your other interviews, what kind of a family you grew up in and stuff like that. And I was curious if, if you kind of grew up in a household that was kind of, you know, nightstand Buddhist, or if you were practicing Buddhist at any point over the course of your life and your travels and stuff like that, that you were doing. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, um, yeah, I grew up in my parents are both pretty active practicing Buddhists. I grew up connected to a Sangha um, associated with them. Um, when I was 17, I um, basically did a program that meant I could leave high school early. And I went out to a Buddhist monastery in California, um, Tassajara uh, Zen Center, hoping to be a monk. Um, okay. <laughs> my, dad, my dad had back in the 70s or whatever it was, gone out to the same Zen, spent time in the same Zen Center. Um, I had to tell them I was 18 because they wouldn't let you get in if you were 17. Um, okay. And I spent, I didn't spend, it wasn't, I wasn't there for that long. I would say, um, you know, uh, about a quarter, you know, an academic quarter or, or, or trimesters worth of time there. Um, and I, part of me really liked um, Zen practice and and I continue to do it. And I definitely think of myself still as a, a Zen Buddhist, but I wasn't really well suited to the life of a monk. Uh, I think the libidinal energies of a 17 year old uh, didn't necessarily do well. (laughs) And then I was also very um, argumentative and I would want to argue with them on an intellectual, you know, way. My parents are also both philosophers. And so I grew up, you know, in a, in a household full of philosophical argument. And so I would start asking, you know, um, the abbot or whoever, you know, these sort of questions and they would kind of say, ah, you're too much in your head, you know, sit down and meditate. And I do think that is a valuable lesson, but it wasn't the complete lesson. And it, and it really reminded me, um, or helped me see how I didn't want to be a monk, uh, indefinitely. And then I, you know, went back to, and then at other points uh, after that, um, I went to Japan as a lay practitioner, uh, and did some Buddhist practice in Kyoto, uh, greater Kyoto area. Um, I went to, um, Mount Koya and hung out with some Shingon dudes for a little while. Um, and then also in Tokyo, greater Tokyo area, but not in, in that level of rigor, not in, in the monastic kind of model. So I definitely, um, resonate with that. And even in undergraduate, then um, I ended up um, being able to make contact with um, some Japanese monks, uh, particular a a guy named Isho uh, Sensei. And he um, uh, was part of this Hihanbukyo movement, critical Buddhism movement. And I found that that also resonated um, quite significantly with my uh, combination of a kind of critical, um, maybe um, continental informed or in philosophical orientation combined with Zen practice. So, gotcha. um, so, and, and I, and I continued a relationship with him for a few years uh, in Japan as well, but I haven't, I don't know what he's up to anymore. I kind of lost touch in the longer digital age, but yeah. So um, I definitely think of myself both philosophically and personally coming out of uh, a Buddhist tradition and think of the work that I do as um compatible with that in some way or another, although I would be resistant to reduce the work, uh, my work to, to Buddhism. It isn't, you know, an exercise uh, in 
um, in, in Buddhist philosophy per se, although Buddhist philosophy is one of my main influences or Asian philosophy more broadly is one of my main influences. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And, and family wise, I mean, was there religion around the house and stuff like that in terms of how you grew up or? It, yeah, definitely. I mean, my parents are quite active in their Sangha community. Um, my extended family are either basically Jews or Buddhists. And um, I grew up with, um, you know, aunts and uncles who, you know, were affiliated with one tradition or the other, especially uh, my Jewish family, uh, which was geographically closer to home because uh, um, you know, my dad's uh, brothers and sisters lived in, you know, the greater Ohio area at various points when, when I grew up and my grandfather as well. Um, so my grandfather would take me to tried to take me to synagogue and I didn't necessarily find it super um, that it resonated with me super well, but I did find myself very connected and strongly connected to a broader Jewish culture and a broader sense of um, the history of the Jewish people. And, you know, like his, his Judaism was less theological or, or religious and more like, here's all the terrible shit that people have done to the, done to our community over the years. And, you know, here's this ancient tyrant did this and then this thing happened and then this thing happened and then this thing happened. Um, I don't know that he even necessarily believed in God, but he, he believed um, in family and in heritage. And I thought that was, uh, that uh, impacted me. And then, you know, on the Buddhist side, um, my parents' Zen community is a um, ecumenical uh, Zen community with a mixture of basically white and Asian uh, and even one Native American and one South Asian consistent member. Um, they're a bunch of old uh, hippies basically now. And, and the <laughs> second generation, my brother does more, is more active and has his own sort of community in that geographical area now. Um, but it was, you know, uh, a it, it was, you know, it was good. And, you know, we would go once a week or something to do some kind of um, Sangha okay. practice. Cool. Um, yeah. But I mean, I rebelled against that in high school for a while, too, before, you know, to, to tell the story even a little bit further back. I think my from from the age of about 14 to the age of 17, uh, I broke from it and I felt like it was just as I rejected my parents' hippiness. I was deep into the punk rock scene. Okay, I yeah. was a very, I, at that point, I would have uh, described myself as anti-religious uh, and uh, anti-Buddhist in maybe, or at least I wasn't connecting with it very much. Um, but then I kind of came back to it within a more critical way, basically, than, than perhaps um, than my, perhaps my parents might have uh, practiced it before. Very cool. Yeah, no, because I was actually reading recently American Jubu, uh, and it's it's a fascinating reading as well, I guess, in terms of people with Jewish backgrounds that have interesting relationship with Buddhism and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, and I, I'm from Montreal, so I mean, Leonard Cohen is everywhere here in Montreal. Yeah. So yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Totally. he was awesome. And yeah. uh, so I mean, his relation. I mean, so when I was growing up, I mean, my dad gravitated towards uh, Cohen. I mean, obviously, I'm French Canadian, so I'm Catholic. But obviously, my parents go and completely rebelled against that during the Quiet Revolution and stuff like that. So, you know, DT Suzuki started popping up around the house, and then Alan Watts started popping up around the house. So, I grew up with that kind of stuff. So, that very so kind of 1960s countercultural type of literature and stuff like that. And that's what drew me to Zen and eventually led me up to the Montreal Zen Center. Uh, but once I discovered like scholars like Bernard Fall, uh, it really, and Richard King as well, 
uh, Richard King really threw me for a loop in terms of the colonial, post-colonial sort of, and back and forth in terms of how Buddhism eventually became a sort of transnational sort of religion. And I mean, this is where your scholarship is uh, amazing uh, as well. Um, and I mean, I, I interviewed on my pod, uh, Matteo Bortolini, thanks to Galen Watts, actually, who's actually the biographer of Robert Bella. Um, and I had a great conversation with him. And I was wondering, I mean, you know, wh while you were doing your work on Japan, if Robert Bella, you know, kind of popped up on your radar, and if you kind of wrestled with his writing and work as well on Japan as you were writing your book and some of this other scholarship that you've been doing? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I didn't, um, so I got to see um, Robert Bella speak once. Um, and I didn't get to talk to him. I mean, I had asked some critical questions in the audience, but I didn't get particularly much of a reply. But um, I, I found uh, his work on civil, uh, early work on civil religion quite um, interesting when I was trying to theorize how Shinto and the state fit together in my first book. Mm -hmm. um, his also his account of Tokugawa uh, religion and, and work ethic, I disagreed with, but it was still a, a great book insofar as it had a clear thesis and it was, you know, eminently readable. I think that the Bella that I... Um, you know, so and I, and I re definitely respect his long trajectory as a scholar. I mean, a lot of interesting stuff. Um, I would say um, I haven't read, you know, so I read the Tokugawa religion book and, you know, that famous essay. I haven't read everything else that he wrote. I think that the last uh, book of his that I wrote, um, and this is when I saw him speak, was around religion and human evolution. Mm. And that one, I, I had a lot of things to kind of um, disagree with uh, at the time. But um you know, the, the whole trajectory of it, um, I, I found kind of problematic, but, um, I am, I was, I thought that his attempt and his breadth basically, and his ability to straddle, um, all these different discourses was, was very useful. Um, and I, you know, admire him as a scholar, um, even, you know, despite various points of disagreement. So, sure. yeah, but I, I think Bella was not like a central touchstone, but I, I do know his work for sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, because I mean, uh, in terms of your book on metamodernism, when you touch on the idea of a social process ontology, I was wondering, uh, you know, like how you would relate to Bella's idea of the kind of evolution of religion or even modernization theory. So if I understand you correctly, it's that's not, there's no correlation there. There's no sort of kind of similarity, I guess, in terms of your thinking there, in terms of process social ontology at all? Well, I mean, I think that w what I do tend to see is that, so in that book, one of the, for for listeners who haven't had a chance to, to look at it, um, one of the things that I'm interested in, it's probably the, you know, one of the five themes of the book or something, which has too many themes and it's why it's a little hard to talk through. But anyway, uh, one of the five themes of the book is about a, a understanding uh, the social world in a new way and in terms of process social kinds. And, you know, um, which I could talk about in more or less detail. But one of the things that I argue about social kinds is that they tend to be teleological. They tend to have purposes built into them. We built, we often uh, originate social kinds for specific purposes. But unlike uh, grand evolutionary trajectories or accounts of progressivism, uh, or, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of social change, I tend to see social kinds, you know, subject to rationalization, but in a very Weberian sense, in that they can become rationalized toward things that they were not intent originally intended uh, to be their function or purpose. Uh, and the concrete mechanisms of, we might say, reward, and uh, in the book I talk about concrete mechanisms of mimesis, but we don't need to think about that now, but the concrete mechanisms through which the social kinds are perpetuated or brought forward, 
have a big impact on what they um, rationalize towards. So, for instance, um, you know, in American sprinting, the you know, or, or, or um, U.S. Olympic sprinting, the rules of the sprinting uh, in the Olympics, how they are articulated, um, change the specific ways that people try and get faster as runners. And so, you know, rules about if there were no rules about using drugs, then people would, you know, use drugs. If certain things get classed as drugs and others don't, people tend to do those because it makes them, you know, better performers or what have you. Or if there are rules around shoes, they have to, you know, once the footwear gets good enough, people then start to have rules around footwear or whatever. All that is to say that there's a way in which rationalization processes and functions diverge. And for that reason, um, I mean, it turns out that many social kinds, whether they were originally functionally articulated, you know, which I argue, many of them diverge from that. And because of that, they're often not reducible to a single function. And so there's not like one function that religion has served uh, across mm. different epochs. Uh, the, I, I would argue that there's not, and, and especially complex social kinds, uh, you know, religion being a paradigmatic example or whatever we're referring to with the term religion, which I even argue is multiple social kinds. But anyway, um, a lot of that tends to be, you know, there, there's not a single functional explanation that covers it. And so when you imagine that it's a unitary thing that has had the same purpose uh, over the decades, often um, for me, you tend to miss, you tend to essentialize the wrong things and you tend to miss the actual uh, functions that it served, which have often been multiple and, you know, um, et cetera. So, I mean, that's, that's a point of disagreement. Yeah. And yeah. then, in, in, and then I have other issues around notions of modernity, um, but not necessarily, but yeah. And, and questions about modernization, but those are, you know, orthogonal to this part of the conversation. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, no, I mean, because obviously, I mean, you, I mean, you've been pretty involved as well with the North American Association for the Study of Religion. And I noticed that you're, I think you're actually one of the main editors, I think, of the journal as well that they put out, no? In terms of um, the method and theory of religion? A method um, yeah, and study I'm, of religion. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the editors on a theory and method and study of religion, but I'm not one of the main editors. I'm probably one of the woof, uh, like bottom of the editor chain. I mean, okay. like, so uh, they... Uh, Insofar as there are two head editors uh, of that journal, and they do a lot of the more significant work, what I do by being on the editorial board is I do a lot of peer review for them. So I get tons and tons of stuff that comes through, um, and I try and um, suggest ways usually to make it better. Or, you know, sometimes I'm the grumpy peer reviewer number two, and I'm like, this doesn't have any theoretical basis. Or something like that. But, um, <laughs> but I'm not um, high enough up in the um, hierarchy of that particular journal to, um, you know, to, to, to produce calls or have it, you know, um, to shape its direction more than just being a, a fairly regular contributor of peer review. Yeah. Gotcha. But it's a, okay. good, it's a good journal, but yeah, but I'm, yeah. And yeah. I guess, uh, cause the North American association for the study of religion and sort of intention with the American Academy of religion is, uh, I mean, they're two different, very interesting bodies and have historical, uh, interesting historical background, um, and I mean, cause the North American association for the study of religion, I mean, there's some people like, uh, Russell McCutcheon, uh, that are big in terms of the, you know, the area of, of theory behind, uh, in religious studies per se. And I mean, this is an area that you go out and focus a lot of your, your work on. Um, and I mean, during the, the, the eighties into the nineties and into the early two thousands, I mean, the whole debate of whether religion is even a thing, right? I mean, you talk about that quite a bit in a lot of, actually in all of your work. Um, and I was wondering, uh, you know, now that, I mean, cause you're an up and coming scholar, I mean, you're really pushing the envelope 
Do you think Thank that you. that yeah. period is is dying now in terms of this kind of idea, in terms of a secular-based approach to the study of religion is kind of fizzling out or has reached its peak or even kind of, a, you know, a postmodern-based approach to the study of religion is, is coming to an end? I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on that now? Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't think that the, a secular approach is coming to an end. I think that there's a plurality of possible secular methods to the in, in the discipline. But I do think that a particular deconstructive move, which is the continual reliquidation of our main scholarly categories, that's something that um, has run out of steam. I would argue. I mean, look, if you look at uh, the actual publication track record of journals, not just uh, uh, method and theory in the state of religion, but JAR. I'm also on the editorial board or was of the JAR um, up until the last year or something. But if you look at the at concrete publications, there still tends to be a back and forth of people universalizing the category of religion and critiquing the category of religion. Both of those to me are dead ends in different ways. Uh, the universalists basically uh, are very easy to critique uh, and the critics don't uh, do much positive scholarship often beyond their active critique. And so you you get kind of this um, binary stalemate in which people are you know bashing each other back and forth. My sense is that um, the generationally the universalists are, are dwindling and but now uh, even the more postmodern to, to, to use that term in a more specific way that I uh, use in the metamodernism book, the postmodern or critical scholars of religion, you know, had some great insights, but their insights um, are they're, they're just sort of just terminating in critique. So they are really good at deconstructing. And I think that that's useful. In fact, I think it's an even important and necessary first step, but it's only a first step. And so the question is, how do you move past it? OK, so we grant the, the non-universality of the category religion. Now what? And and then now what part um, is where I think uh, things have been a little bit thin. So, I mean, uh, by, by the citational numbers, uh, is that group on the way out? I'm not sure. I, I would be, it'd be uh, an empirical question we could look at. But I think in terms of um, the utility and value of that scholarship, you know, there, there are only so many times you can just sort of um, make that argument over and over and over again and feel like you're making a new contribution. And, and I really feel like it's only parasitic on the universalists who are basically dying out once there's nobody to argue with who the, the deconstructionists become even less relevant because they're very active deconstruction. Yeah. Is at best a, a preparatory to, to, to another kind of work. At least that's my argument. And, you know, I emerged out of, I think you're right out of the, the way that the camp would call itself the critical religion camp. And, you know, I see my work, um, my early work was definitely, um, you know, in dialogue with their stuff more, much more specifically, but, uh, and the argument, my argument is not that they were wrong, but merely that they, um, were they didn't realize that a lot of other categories were equally cruddy. So if you think that religion is a uniquely <laughs> bad category, then you might think, oh, we just deconstruct the category of religion and then we leap over to culture and we just call everything culture or something. Well, it yeah. turns out that culture is just a, just a mess and similar mess. And then <laughs> so then you go, okay, where you get, where do you go from there? Politics or, or power? What each of those categories can be deconstructed in a similar kind of way. And then in the metamodernism book, what I wanted to say is, well, if the, the fact that all of these social kinds or social categories can be constructed in a similar way tells us something fundamental about the social kinds themselves. And then once we recognize those insights, which I try and catalog or, or, or talk through in the book, then we can um, build, on, build on them and, and we can actually do more positive work. So, uh, but, but in that respect, it's not a repudiation of critical religion, but merely a recognition that it's 
um, we can be critical of it in, in its own presuppositions. Uh, and we need to, to kind of move past it. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's the same as my attitude toward quote unquote postmodernism more broadly, which is that I'm not an anti-postmodernist. I'm not saying, oh, postmodernism is a bunch of obscure and disjunk or, you know, was never any good. Uh, actually, I think that there were a number of valuable insights in that stratum of scholarship uh, I refer to as postmodernism. It's just that they've you know, we, it, they've ran out of steam. They've run out of value. I mean, we, you know, we, we did some good work. Uh, it, it made some certain progress in the movement of ideas, but um, it's not making more progress. And if anything, uh, it has often become so exaggerated and caricatured in terms of its own dogmatisms that it's getting in the way. Um, and so uh, it's time for a fresh critique of it and uh, moving past that. So, you know, consolidate what was good and jettison what was no, you know, what was bad, and then we can move forward. And so, um, you know, the, the early paradigmatic postmodernists were also even a gen, you know, a generation older than me too. And, and so, um, I think it's, uh, time to, to, yeah, it, the, the situation has shifted. The movement of thought has shifted. Yeah. No. And I mean, what I really appreciate is, I mean, cause I have a huge appreciation for guys like Aaron Hughes and McCutcheon and uh, Donald uh, Whitby, you know, like I, well, I was going to school once I got, I fell into my methodology class. Those were the guys that we were, we were going out and reading. Right. Uh, and they've produced amazing work. So that's where I got acquainted essentially with the North American association for, uh, for the study of religion. Uh, but kind of like you, I mean, like when it came well, for me, anyways, when it came to go out and start thinking, if do I move on to graduate school? I was like, no, this is like a dead end. You know, like, I just don't see where the hell this is going. And I don't see a future to this at all. And then by the time I was done, I was like, I was done. Like, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't want to go and deal with that. But now, I mean, coming back to it, I mean, like the work that you're doing now, because I, I think it's so cool because you seem to have straddled or found a space basically between the two the new materialists and those kind of guys over at the North American North American Association for the Study of Religion, and you found a niche in there to go out and start dialoguing between a new materialist and what's been going on in religious studies. So for me, it's like, yes, man, like amazing. And um, I'm wondering if that's kind of how you see it at all in terms of where you're kind of following within the field of religious studies. Uh, well, um, I, I try and I, I think of myself as a very broad, um, attempt to do theory more broadly and and what that looks like i try not to put too narrow uh, a, a constraint set of constraints on and i've been you know i'm a big theory head and i've been following all the different kinds of movements that have um that have come out um within the humanities and social sciences to the extent that i can find them um not just in religious studies but you know i spend a lot of time reading um literature and sociology and anthropology and history and philosophy etc um new materialism is one uh that i that i had to work through i think it was something that was um that ha had some valuable critiques of basically what we could call post-structuralist uh theories of language and um and, and I definitely do try and consolidate the bits of that movement that I found useful. And I, I think there, I have a whole chapter basically that that you're pointing to where I'm trying to, you know, uh, lift up together both post-structuralist semiotics and new materialism and try and show how um, one can benefit from reading the two of them together. But yeah. I think, but I think of it, but yeah, that's only, I think one fifth of the project. And even then I would say, um, what I end up tr showing is that many of the new materialists, you know, it, it was a fun movement. It's a valuable movement. But many of the new materialists were merely rendering in ontology the very things that they were criticizing about language. And so 
you know, and, and, and in the process of doing it, and it's often in very, very literal terms, like the new materials were often like, we've given too much power to language, but then they take their words from literary theory, like actant or, you know, network or, uh, or, or whatever agency, all of which were narrative, th th you know, w w terms in narrative theory, basically before they were uh, in new materialism. And then they end up describing a um, natural world that has all the properties that the post-structuralists ascribe, ascribe to language, a world of, of uncomprehensible flux, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and to my mind that they're right to point out the limitations of post-structuralism, but, uh, and they're right to turn our attention toward um, how um, the world, to, to the existence of a world um that is not merely reducible to discourse, but I think that they're wrong insofar as they, under their banner categories of things like agency and network uh, and uh, actant, et cetera, they um, miss, they need an interpretive theory. They need a theory of meaning and they need a theory of uh, causation. And they lump them together and they sort of call it, you know, the vibrant agency or something, you know, agency or whatever. And I think for that reason, they produce almost, you know, they produce a whole different set of problems. Uh, and for that reason, I try and solve them. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's definitely one of my one of my influences, I think probably closer to home for me, um, in terms of my philosophical background is a lot of post-colonial theory, basically, mm, and, and decolonial yeah. theory that that's um, and, and trying to think outside the hegemony of a kind of Eurocentric theory space, even as I, um, you know, read French and German and, you know, um, Spanish theorists. But um, but in, in that respect, um, yeah, but I'm trying to do kind of more fundamental work in the humanities and social sciences and religious studies, although it's the discipline of my original academic home. Um, I'm so pretty anti-disciplines. And so I, I think <laughs> I that a lot that, of times yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of too much siloing. Like, I think, you know, it, it, there's a tendency to, there's, I, you know, there's something great to be said for specialization and we all need to do it to some degree. And, and it's great if you're excited about something, uh, you know, be passionate about it, go as deep as you want to go in it. But also many of the academic disciplines have an overinflated sense of their autonomy, their uniqueness, their special contribution. And they don't realize that a lot of folks are working in parallel in ways that are either complementary to them or mm -hmm. in direct contradiction. Uh, there are, you know, anthropologists who are doing redundant work with what sociology was doing, or there are people in contemporary religious studies today who are inadvertently you know, rediscovering something that feminist theory considered and then rejected in the 80s, uh, you know, or whatever. And I think that that um, disciplinary siloing leads toward a lot of um, eh, jargon, obscurantism and and work that doesn't have broad as broad implications as it could. And so yeah. I think that there's a mistake about how we're even training our graduate students, because I think like you, a lot of people in graduate school get burned out and they get burned out in part because I'm uh, uh, not to attribute this to you in particular, but people tend to get burned out in part because the very thing that, that was inspiring and that they were passionate about, we kind of graduate school beats it out of you. And then it trains <laughs> you to do some kind of narrow gap in the literature. And that's probably not the best way to be training scholars, uh, yeah. both if you want good scholarship and if you want functional, happy human beings, it's definitely not the best way to do it. And so uh, for, for that reason, there are exceptions and, you know, and, and, um, but, uh, you know, and, I, and I've been lucky to have some really great teachers, but um, it, it's not the norm, I think, in, yeah. in for, for talking to friends. Well, you know. I mean, the other thing, too, is, I mean, is is religious studies in terms of going out and taking sort of, uh, you know, an outsider's perspective on 
the study of religion, you know, and I was curious as well with this, I actually had this down as a question because I mean, McCutcheon and uh, I mean, Aaron Hughes and, you know, the whole crew over at the North American Association for the Study of Religion, I mean, they had on obviously the debate around, you know, is religion even a category? And if it is a category, is it even worthwhile to go and treat it that way? But they eventually got into the sort of, you know, insider, outsider debate right in terms of you know people that are scholar practitioners or people that are you know within religious traditions themselves you know that are actually picking it up and saying you know whether you know it's buddhology or theology and i was curious you know kind of because you're clearly taking a scientific based approach to the study of religion and a broader picture of philosophy in the humanities so i'm curious to kind of get a bit of a feel i guess you know in terms of your take on that in terms of people that would prefer to actually go and take an insider perspective, you know, vis-a-vis their own practices and traditions and how they actually go and relate to their, you know, particular religion of choice. I'd be curious to hear, you know, some of your thoughts. Yeah. And yeah. And I've written a piece that actually came out um, a long time ago, but it's uh, in a response to something that Aaron Hughes wrote, but it, um, it, it the piece of mine, it's called religious studies in the jargon of authenticity. Oh, and I tried okay, to, cool. And I, you can find it on uh, your listeners can find it on my academia.edu page. I put most, I like to put stuff up there because I'm just trying to get the ideas out there. Um, and that's actually where I got the the polit- uh, the politics of Buddhist studies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so in that, I want to I challenge the presumption that insiders are necessarily um, less critical and that outsiders are necessarily more critical. And I, I want to argue that you know it, part of this is also a um, a more broad critique about the question of what we mean by value neutrality. And, you know, value neutrality is a useful ideal, but it is a value itself and it has certain kinds of limitations yeah. built into it. And so I'm both critical of, um, uh, you know, so in a way I'm intervening, I'm, I mean, uh, cutting across that discourse. So I don't think, I think you can be, you know, I don't know, um, uh, a, a practicing Buddhist or a practicing Catholic and, and super critical of your Catholic scholarship. There's no, the, the presumption that you wouldn't be would be a mistake, but you can also be not but, a member of a tradition. But do you think and, they yeah, belong in the yeah. academy? Should they be allowed sure, in the academy sure, or but, in I mean, theological? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, why not? I mean, I, there, in fact, there's no it, we judge the work on its quality and standards. We don't need to actually add this extra layer where we overjudge gotcha. the person and their motivations for doing it. And in fact, you know, Max Weber, who's the in, in certain respects, the author of notions of, of, of Freiheit, so value neutrality or value freedom, argued that one way to do value neutrality was to be open about your values. And then when people are reading the work, they can factor that in. So if I'm reading a scholarly account of um, you know, uh, Ignatius of Loyola written by a Jesuit, I'm going to, you know, maybe I, I'll be more suspicious in certain areas, but um, than in others, but that doesn't invalidate the work. And we all have reasons for the things that we do our scholarship. Mm-hmm. And one of my criticisms in that essay, and this also carries over into the metamodernism book, is that there's this confusion about fact and value and what their relationship is and how you produce quote unquote, scholarly, you know, neutrality or objectivity. And the presumption is that if you have values, you can't be a good scholar or something like that, or you can't be a neutral scholar. And at point of fact, um, that, you know, as, as I alluded, the value neutrality is itself a value, but also um, scholarship science has values built into it, like values like reproducibility or values about um, the nature of, you know, epistemic norms about what makes a good argument. If I say, you know, um, that was a good logical proof, I'm making a value judgment, even though it is in the realm of logic, you know, so there are all these contradictions that come from presuming that you can push or flush values out. And instead, what I argue is that then the call, these calls for 
um, value neutrality can often mask or force people to repress their values. And when values are repressed, they tend to bubble out in work, but in ways that are harder to track and make them in ways more unaccountable. They tend to come out in, in a key of scorn. They tend to come out as negative values. They, you know, you, you, you disallow things. You say, oh, that's no good. It's problematic, but you're not, because you're not sticking up for a value. I don't know what you mean when you say problematic, except you think that it's ethically compromised in some way or another or whatever, or, or intellectually compromised. And you're blurring the boundary between the two of those or, or whatever. So um, against the, the, the McCutcheons of the world, I tend to, or well, especially the Donald Weeb. How does he pronounce his name? Vibe? Vibe? Viba? I think uh, it's Donald Wibby, I think. Okay. Uh, it's from the University of uh, Toronto. I so, right. think that's, yeah, I, I might a, be mispronouncing a, it. Yeah, we had a, <laughs> a, a sort of a, a somewhat aggressive email exchange at one point. But um, anyway, he from his he thinks that he can produce a scientific study of religion by fleshing out all the values. And I want to note that is a value and that he's deeply <laughs> yeah. committed to a whole bunch of things. And if you look through his work, he'll use uh, terms of um, you know, loaded what what are called thick uh, terms, so terms that have both epistemic and value-laden language to them, all over the place. And part of it, even he he ramps up that language in his call for scientificity. So you know, we we can't let those people in. You know, all this stuff that would ruin the quality of the academy. It would be no good anymore. Oh, that's values. There are values everywhere. So the question is not, do you have values or not? That's not. The question is, what are the values and what are the values that we as scholars need to aim toward? And one of those is a, should be a kind of um, reproducibility or, val or value neutrality such that, um, you know, we're not skewing our work toward predetermined conclusions. But that's true regardless of what our personal background and reason for doing th the project are in the first place. So, you know, you can be uh, a Catholic doing just as great work on Ignatius of Loyola, who is not, as long as you're not skewing your work, just as you could be a non-Catholic because totally skewing the work to take down Ignatius of Loyola because you think Catholics suck or whatever. That's neither of the, you know, so th that your identity position in, in a way uh, is less relevant. And I also push back against uh, something that uh, I think is happening. I see in scholarship, but especially among my students, which is an epistemic insiderism, which is the presumption mm. that just because you're a member of a group, you know, everything there is to know about that group. And I think that that Although well-motivated originally, and uh, while I have um, a lot of respect for some of the central claims, or I have a lot of agreement with some of the central claims of standpoint epistemology, the epidemic insiderism is taking even any reasonable form of standpoint epistemology too far, and it reduces it to a notion that, you know, because the thing is, like, we're all flawed, we're humble people, we only exist in uh, in some particular individualistic relationship to our categories. So, you know, um, you're knowledge of what it is to be a French Canadian is going to have been shaped by the specificities of your experience. And, yeah. you know, you may, you'll have had different experiences than other French Canadians in a different time period or a different place or a different, you know, what have you. And so um, the presumption that you would either know or not know because you're a French Canadian, you know, is, is one that one could challenge. And so you would then, you know, it, it might turn out in point of fact, you know, you're going to have more day-to-day -day experiences of what it's like to be a French Canadian today than people who are not French Canadians. Good point. But then that doesn't mean than in all other areas, you have a kind of epistemic privilege. And so um, anyway, so I already I wrote an article that kind of pushes against versions of both. But I think in religious studies in particular, there's this really unhelpful insider outsider binary, which uh, leads toward uh, which is often uh, mobilized against, for example, Islamic scholars who mm, get called yeah. out for actually being Muslims uh, or or. Um, rather than, you know, people who are from Protestant backgrounds whose re religiosity seems invisible and so people aren't worried about them or whatever. And so um, 
you know, that uh, that's a total mess. And in fact, even the presumption that but there's a clear what, line yeah, is, is between what insiders do you make, and outsiders. Yeah. What do you make of the idea that religious studies is nothing but a form of Protestantism type idea? Um, so, yeah, I, I have a good article about that. So, <laughs> okay, uh, cool. so I, yeah, so I, I challenge that idea. I mean, I'm not not in a way that necessarily redeems it. Um, I have a okay. piece um uh that came out um actually just a, a year or two ago uh, a theosophical discipline uh about the history of religious studies and theosophy so religious studies it just nice. came out in the cool. in the jar so the journal of the american academy of religion and um you know i, I argue that that religious studies has a long connection to um basically various forms of mysticism theosophy etc et and if, if you look at concretely at the history of many of the theorists that we've been trying in our discipline a lot of them not only were they um influential because they wrote things that were creative about religion but they often had very creative orientations toward the category of religion and often didn't fit into established religion movements so, so i have a strong pushback against jay-z smith and his notion of a protestant discipline nice. that said okay. um and, and you're welcome to to look at that piece that's not for some reason up on my academy.edu but that reminds me maybe i should put it up there um but uh that said i don't think that's necessarily redemptive either but you know it, i mean you know that's uh it's just that the the old fashioned critique which is the the anti protestant critique of the, of the discipline i mean look all the disciplines are screwed up they're i mean they all they're all they all have built into them uh the kinds of um loaded historicity that comes from being formulated mostly in european and at the second extent north american um quasi colonial environments in the 19th century that left legacies of unexamined values and uh legacies of um internally determined blind spots uh etc um does that so so in, in that respect we need to provincialize or you know decolonize um all the academic disciplines but i don't think religious studies is any worse than any of the others it's just okay. got a different set of hang-ups and then the end goal uh is not for me purely repudiation so some people are like you know you call out the disciplines and then you know you argue that the academy sucks and then you collect your paycheck a, as a professor and go home or whatever that's not <laughs> what i'm trying to do because that that move is a little you know i'm trying to actually think about how we might um having recognized the limitations of our own history uh, and having historicized our disciplines in various in varying degrees of rigor, what, how we might work forward to productively do scholarship in new creative ways or new better ways uh, without these older shackles upon us. And so and, and then in the Metamodernism book, I try and lay out a positive program for what some of that could look like. Um, and so in that respect, uh, one of the things that that, that I um, found um, tiresome about the critical religion folk is that they were just arguing for a liquidation of various things. So the, the discipline mm. of religious studies itself, often from within that discipline and without proposing a positive alternative. And similarly, I wasn't happy with the old school religious universalists who were trying to take us back to, um, you know, the great days of Merce Eliada or, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. um, who, who will know it was not a, a particularly Protestant thinker, uh, you know, even that, that how those critiques got layered on each other is a, is, is an oddity, but anyway, throw that aside. Um, but in, in any case, uh, Neither of those is, I think, a redemptive, you know, is this path we should take going forward? Gotcha. Very cool. No, very, very interesting. Okay. I mean, um, well, I mean, because the other, I mean, actually, I, I did an interview with Francis Charette, and he pointed me to a lot of uh, actually Aaron Hughes' work and his book from the seminary to the university, uh, An Institutional History of the Study of Religion in Canada is a fantastic yeah. read. Uh, yeah. and, uh, I mean, since I am in Quebec, I mean, cause I mean, we're just slammed all the time with the idea of French laicite, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so we don't have uh, at times a sort of, even though we have Charles Taylor up here from McGill and stuff like that. I mean, he's there going out and advocating for, you know, quite sophisticated sort of philosophy, only almost quasi theology as well, depending how you actually go out and read Taylor. Um, but I mean, the, the cool thing about Aaron, um, Aaron Hughes book, and basically he's building on Harold Coward's book in terms of 50 years of religious studies. So like he's going through like 50, 60 years now of religious studies. And what I'm so excited about your work is that I feel like we're son of like, we're, we're, we're embarking on a new phase of religious studies. Um, and I was hoping maybe you kind of go out and talk a bit to that maybe and how you think, or well, how, and now that your book has been out in metamodernism for a while, you've been doing a bit of the podcast circuit. You've been interacting with some of your uh, your colleagues. So obviously, you're getting colleague you know colleague feedback uh, and stuff like that. So, uh, how do you feel now that you've adopted this idea of metamodern uh, metamodernism? Do you think it's going to go out and hold up, uh, like kind of long term? How do, how do you feel, or are you optimistic a bit? <laughs> Uh, critical or how do you feel today you know now that you've released that book out there yeah i mean i've been really you know thrilled with the positive response to that book i've been you know it's been you know it's my third book and it's but it's had the biggest um in certain respects the i've had more detailed and positive response to that than either of my previous two books and um, I think people in our, across a range of academic disciplines, I think I get the most positive response from people who are in a precarious position in the academy in one way or another. So it tends to be graduate students or postdocs or adjunct faculty members. I think um, I, I was delighted in that particular roundtable um, for Religious Studies Review to get some established folks who were also quite excited about it because I wasn't sure. Um, I'm calling for some changes and the way that uh, the establishment, I've gotten some critical emails from people who are in the establishment who, uh, you know, uh, like, like Donald what Weba or whatever. Weep, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and, and, but some supportive emails as well, but, but I get more critique from that old guard perhaps, but, um, uh, I don't know whether what piece is So my sense is that people are deploying it right now and that they're using the theoretical, um, innovations of the book to do new kinds of scholarship, particularly in relation to social kind theory, but also some folks in other disciplines are finding the translation theory stuff uh, or the semiotics useful. Uh, I think more broadly, um, people find resonant the call toward uh, a kind of critical virtue ethics as a kind of political politics of the project or maybe you know value uh, of the project. Um, I think some people have, uh, you know, found this process social ontology interesting or useful, and as a corrective to to certain um, presuppositions built into the way that we're studying our various disciplinary objects. I don't know if the term metamodernism is going to stick or not. Like that, for me, is is sort of uh, peripheral even to the project. And and I imagine anything I argue, you know, I'm a I'm a kind of uh, I believe in humble knowledge, and and I recognize that there's some parts of my book will probably turn out to be wrong. I mean, it's just I don't know what yet. Uh, <laughs> so you know, uh, nothing you know survives for eternity. I mean, I think it'd probably be uh, a shame if it did. You know, so um, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is writing within a certain horizon of finitude. But that said, I think that there's uh, I'm really excited about the things that I see that are in progress, not just in religious studies actually, but um, outside the discipline as well that are relating to that book and picking up pieces of its theory. I mean. You know, one of the things that that's challenging, you know, even though there are some established folk using the category metamodern or metamodernism, I didn't write this as part of a movement and I didn't write it with the idea of, um, 
you know, uh, I didn't have peers that I was like, you know, let's all us do this together. I looked for that, but I, I couldn't find it. And so um, I, I feel like I'm, you know, a, a little dude with a long lever trying to move a big rock or something. And, you know, <laughs> to have that, uh, you know, um, even move a little is really appealing and, and really exciting. And, and I'm really, you know, been delighted at it. You know, I think the book's being translated into Mandarin and there are conversations about translating it into Spanish, uh, which I hope will happen. And there's been a lot of uh, pickup and a whole range of, you know, panels on it at the, uh, you know, in complete conferences and in, you know, uh, and, and here and there uh, across the globe. And, you know, I'm giving presentations about it, different institutions. I did a chapter for the Freie Universität Berlin a few weeks, uh, no, a few months ago, time goes quickly. Uh, and I'm doing, uh, I'll be talking to folks uh, in the University of Paris system uh, this summer, you know, so it's getting out there. Uh, and I think um, um, uh, that makes me more optimistic, maybe because, uh, but I think I'm also hitting a, a zeitgeist shift. So folks were pretty burned out on a lot of the postmodern theory, and they've been hunting for alternatives. I think that mm. the only kind of robust alternative to come out first was the new materialism and but that sort of spent its energy my senses although some people are still doing it um uh and otherwise you know people wanted something else and so this metamodernism book is at least coming into that space making a rigorous self-consistent or at least as much as i can uh, account of an alternative model um yeah. and but if it get if yeah. it get because in certain pockets online i mean it's being picked up kind of as a quasi movement uh, yeah. And clearly, I mean, you're you're coming at it much more from a, an academic scholarly perspective, you and Linda in particular, in terms of the work that you guys have been doing, uh, you know, and I, I listened to your interview, obviously, with Brendan Demsey, but I mean, Brendan Demsey is coming out of the integral movement and some stuff in terms of more popular takes in terms of uh, metamodernism. Uh, and I was curious to kind of get your take on that. If it does take off, you know, kind of culturally or in terms of this particular movement, how how do you think you would handle it as a scholar, you know, in terms of that's, you know, because these things can go out and take on a life of their own, right? Yeah, and they often do, you know, so you kind of lose control of them. Like, you know, um, Derrida, you know, lost control of the word deconstruction pretty quickly after <laughs> after you know he, he put it out there you know or, or, the, or that particular formulation i think that they're you know for, for things to to live they have to be able to grow and change in, in ways that i can't anticipate and but it is exciting and i do think you know th that that the other folks using the term metamodernism i have some necessary uh you know affinities with for sure i mean i think that our projects differ insofar as often they're trying to describe a particular aspect of our moment as metamodern or not metamodern that's not the game uh, i'm particularly interested in well, um, what about but, the idea yeah. of meta so-called metamodern spirituality right and that's not something i'm i'm particularly invested in although you know <laughs> brendan's brendan brendan's yeah. doing it you know and, and good for him and, and yeah and, and, I'm, and yeah. I'm excited that that people are 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 figuring out what that might mean uh but it's not central to to my project i think i'm much more within the um within a kind of philosophical forum i mean the same thing with linda i mean linda's basically trying to uh you know sort things into the camp of you know postmodern metamodern modern that's not my game either and, and i think yeah. that there's some limitations behind that but i do share with all those uh folk uh a you know, frustration with the limitations of the categories of postmodernism and modernism. Mm. And so uh, in that respect, they're they're natural conversation partners. And I've been really excited about 
how folks in the pre-existing uh, metamodernism scene um, have dealt with my work kind of propping up as it is uh, in, in a, you know, cutting across some of their, their discourses. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, what it points to, though, is, is something that's important, which is that for a movement to exist or function, it needs to take on legs. It needs to, you know, have a kind of praxis associated with it. It needs to exist, needs to, you know, appear in the streets. But by the time it does that, it often the academics who might have been involved in certain versions of its formulation necessarily have to lose control of it. So, you know, I don't know, like I hope, you know, <laughs> that it'll that it'll have a, a, a positive life out there. And, and I wouldn't be pushing it forward if I didn't think so. But, you know, uh, there's a strong tendency for, for scholarly, well thought out in, in you know, deeply reasoned um, scholarly categories to get grabbed hold of in the popular arena and either be transformed into something even better than the scholar originally imagined, or perhaps more often be, you know, exaggerated to the point of caricature where it kind of becomes crud. So, gotcha. you know, we'll see which way it goes. Yeah. I, I don't know, you know, like, cool. uh, well, because yeah. I, I interviewed Galen Watts and Watts, uh, Galen actually reviewed your book in terms of disenchantment. And uh, I had uh, Matt McManus on my podcast as well, who's been doing a lot of writing on the idea of postmodern conservatism. But he ventures in quite a bit in terms of the area of um, uh, of religion as well, because of kind of like you, you know, there's this huge sort of sense of dissatisfaction out there for a lot of people. People are kind of you know, completely disenchanted, right? So your work speaks to that, that, you know, hey, guess what, guys, you know, like, it, it, things aren't that disenchanted. I mean, magic is still there, religion is still there. So Galen and uh, Matt take two different sort of approaches in terms of how they're trying to go and kind of address that, uh, kind of the way, I guess, uh, Brendan is in terms of, you know, kind of coming up with this new category, metamodern spirituality. Um, and uh, but Galen goes out and refers to it as an extension of sort of romantic liberalism. Uh, and um, so I guess I guess my kind of question to you is that, I mean, you know, like, because uh, obviously you can go and take a sort of scholarly type based approach. But I guess, how do you kind of fall on the political spectrum in terms of how you're viewing all of this stuff? Is there any politics behind kind of what you're doing? Uh, because some people are actually kind of co-opting the idea of metamodernism in terms of actually some sort of political project as well, not just, you know, some form of either new uh, yeah, religion. And I was curious to just get maybe a few of your thoughts on that, too. Yeah. So in the first case, um, I know I have Galen Watts's The Spiritual Turn book in my massive to read pile. So okay. I haven't <laughs> read it yet, but I've, I've been looking forward to reading that. Um, I know of uh, Matt McManus, but I have not read him. So I don't know um what his uh, i i don't yeah i don't i don't i can't can't comment specifically on on his project or or what what he's doing with it um yeah my work definitely has a, you know emerges from a politics for sure it emerges from a um you know i'm i'm very much uh you know left wing from but from a um emerging from a left that is very dissatisfied with the center left that as it's particularly articulated in our Biden uh, Harris moment in the United States. But, you know, yeah. uh, definitely. Um, so the other way, let me let me give you a couple other coordinates or your listeners, a couple other coordinates that, that might give you um, some help. Um, what I, I, I there's a version one version of a left of argument is a broadly speaking pessimistic one. There, mm. there are versions of this across the spectrum. I don't know, climate extinction or whatever, where, you know, or, or whatever other, there are the variations of them in all the main forms of, uh, uh, of political issues. And 
I think my biggest response is one that is critical of that orientation within uh, the political discourse, especially within the United States. And I understand why people are pessimistic about shit, because, you know, there are a lot of things that profoundly suck in global American, North American politics more broadly and more specifically within the United States. It can be easy to lose hope. But the various politics of pessimism turn out not to be able to. Uh, you know, to turn out to be versions of the kind of postmodern dead end that I identify in scholarship as, um, you know, good critique, but you can't end it there. Right. And so what I, you know, these are like questions about, you know, the history of the United States, for instance. And, you know, and so I also find myself critical of uh, the celebratory optimism of the center left uh, Steven Pinkers of the world uh, who <laughs> yeah. who want to say, you know, everything just keeps getting better and how great was the enlightenment or something like that. That That is not uh, is also not a solution uh, in part because it involves an unbelievable amount of self-deception and uh, it just doesn't it doesn't it, it, ignorance about colonialism and the, you know, the global history uh, more broadly and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, who who is suffering uh, and who, who, how the suffering is being accounted for is all sorts of, you know, has a lot of blind spots built into it. But um, so uh, against both of those, what I want to suggest is that we begin by recognizing all the terrible things that are in our history, but we don't allow our politics to terminate in merely the recognition of suffering. We start from the recognition of suffering, but we don't end there. And for that reason, um, we have to call ourselves to task to not only you know, recognize that there's a lot of injustice in the world, but also that we need to be able to formulate ways of building a more just and more flourishing society. And so for that reason, um, I have a more positive project and it's, you can read it in the end of the metamodernism book, but it, I kind of draw together um, to, it's perhaps in certain respects, the the least philosophically innovative part of the book, maybe, but I draw together two bodies of work, uh, critical theory, which uh, include, I include uh, critical race and critical gender uh, studies within that broader umbrella, which uh, helps us focus on, you know, contemporary forms of injustice, et cetera. Um, but then that kind of work ends, tends to terminate in basically dystopia. And I think it's right at good at calling out the current moment again, but as I was saying, it, we can't end there. And into, plus, to that, I add uh, a kind of virtue ethical tradition, which I'm drawing from um, the Aristotelian tradition, but also Buddhist thinkers like Shantideva and um, uh, and Confucian, uh, Confucius, perhaps, or you know, quote unquote Confucius, um, and uh, and so on. Uh, a lot of a whole range of non-European thinkers who I think make persuasive cases uh, for calls for uh, particular thickened notions of human flourishing. Because I want to argue, and if you, what, what happens if you put those two things together? Well. On the one hand, uh, the idea that um, everything would be just great if everybody was uh, a middle class, uh, quote unquote, white person, uh, it just is a is a fallacy, because actually, if uh, not only sure uh, that would be an improvement on the socioeconomic conditions of a lot of people, but a lot of middle class white folk are suffering and are unhappy and our lives are terminating uh, in a bunch of different ways as well. And so uh, and merely economic access turns out not to be. Um, what it is necessary for living a fully flourishing and fulfilling life. We cannot merely intervene uh, at the level of jobs, although obviously jobs are important. Um, we can't merely intervene in terms of tax credits and think that we're going to solve all the problems uh, in the United States. Rather, we need to learn uh, uh, and encourage 
well, we need to, uh, I'll, I'll phrase this slightly differently. We need to find ways to facilitate folks who are searching for uh, a more flourishing, more fulfilling lives. And uh, not just for humans, but uh, I argue for a kind of multi-species flourishing, a pluralistic, but within a certain uh, uh, spectrum, uh, a kind of flourishing that I think we can um, we can work toward. There's a kind of brighter future possible if we can direct our efforts toward it. And it's a bright future that includes um, a broader uh, yeah, kind of way that people can live lives worth having lived rather than merely pegging their uh, identities uh, and uh, to, to, to certain kinds of economic models. The other oh, way I you love can put it. it no, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Because I mean, yeah. the, the metamodernism book in terms of how you ended, I mean, the idea of focusing in on human flourishing is fantastic. I mean, that's kind of also what Matt McManus actually goes out and focuses in, uh, quite a bit on. And so does Galen in terms of, you know, we need to be focusing on human flourishing. And they talk a lot about, you know, like how the left is kind of failing to actually go out and address the, you know, the idea of meaning. So now all of a sudden you have these people like Jordan Peterson out there that are, you know, kind of drumming up the beat for the right and that. Um, and in fact, I mean, that's Matt McManus's critique or his, his diagnosis of it is that basically there's a new right or a postmodern conservative right that is, that has risen up basically as a sort of reactionary force, basically to what has been going on, on the so-called, you know, postmodern left for these last couple of decades. Right. Um, and he, I mean, obviously he's, you know, he's, he's, He's very familiar with the new materialism, which I think is fantastic, which is very conversant with your take. So, you know, the fact that you're picking on that you're picking up on the new materialism, the idea of human flourishing, uh, and he's picking up on a sort of new agenda to go out and say that the left needs to go out and develop a healthy version or a healthy relationship to to religion. Uh, and I was kind of curious to kind of go out and get your take on that or whether you think that's kind of, you know, what what you're accomplishing or is that something that might actually go out and possibly be addressed through you know your work on metamodernism yeah definitely i mean i think that the left needs to have a yeah uh change its its well there are different versions of the left but but that the contemporary left has a huge blind spot uh around the category religion and um you know I do think that we uh, the presumptive uh, secularism or laicite of the left uh, often does it a huge disservice. Mm. And, and I think even more importantly, you know, I think I probably share with these guys uh, a sense that a, a lot of the old postmodernism continues to live on in the right as well as the left, whether yes. that's, you know, and, <laughs> and so, um, you know, in, in perhaps a, a very vulgarized form. But um, and, and I and I think, you know, um, yeah, so I think. I definitely see my work as as calling for value. And now whether that value is going to fit within um, institutionalized religion or whether it's going to fit within, you know, the spiritual turn that that Watts talks about or whether it's going to fit um, in, um, you know, how people are going to find it. Uh, I don't want to overdetermine. Uh, it may turn out that, you know, people are um, happy you know, religion is part of that, but it might, I bet there might be plenty of other places that people might go to for that. So, um, but I think at the very least, the idea that we should be aggressively secularist and uh, alienate religious folks is not a winning strategy. I, I think that that's no good. And the idea that the only kind of values we can stick up for are negative values, in other words, isms that we call out, as important as calling out those isms is, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, et cetera. You know, it's important to call that stuff out, but we also have to have positive things that we stick up for too. And mm. I and I and I hear very little positive formulations on the contemporary left. It's all, you know, 
critical and very little celebration. <laughs> and that gives people very little to work toward. And I think we also have, there's a long history of political science showing how basically cynicism and uh, you know negativity don't make for good politics. And so if you uh, want to understand some of the limitations of the left, you know, we can see how that discourse is, you know, broadly um, insufficient, you know, not that it's not, a, you know, important to call out that shit, but it's not enough. And we need positive things to be calling for. Uh, and the anemic language of diversity, equity and inclusion. I mean, that language is so thin and so anemic. It means so little. I mean, you know, Raytheon believes in equity or what, you know, like crud like that. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, Raytheon being a massive defense contractor, you know, th they'll quote, you know, their commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion that that shows you that um, that those terms aren't meaning very much and not doing very much work in our contemporary world. Not that they're bad or not that their original formulation was bad, but that rather they're just have been stripped of all relevant meaning so that they then become a thing that, I don't know, corporate and academic administrators spout off with very little commitment to anything serious. Uh, so I think that's part of it. And I think also that there's an over tendency upon uh, in, in uh, political action to focus almost exclusively on language. And they do a ton of language policing. And I think that that often can detract from uh, uh, the communities we're even trying to help. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not to say that, that some of that, you know, uh, uh, wasn't a good thing. And, you know, there's a sort of minimal level of, you know, getting rid of actively racist or whatever formulations that, that we, we can do. And we mostly have done. But uh, the continual parade of preferred terms that shift uh, every five or six years uh, from one in one field to another, that that is uh, a waste of our uh, political energy. And uh, we should be spending much more time um, focusing on the communities that are being uh, disadvantaged and who which are suffering, which often, um, you know, don't give a shit about what terms we're we're, we're using and uh, at least not as as much as they would like to have water that they can drink and um stuff without chemicals leaching into it or or what have you uh and so for for that reason also that there's a tendency for vocabularies to originate within the middle class or academic left uh that is supposed to be used to refer to communities that themselves don't use that language like for instance in the United States um we uh, most of the people who I know who are, um, uh, you know, uh, indigenous refer to themselves as Indians, N not whatever the latest po politically, you know, correct, uh, yeah. correct term for that is. And, you know, um, and sensitivity listening to that, looking at li listening to what terms are communities actually using to describe themselves, not what term do academics think is the more politically correct term. You know, that would be a little bit helpful. or Latinx, for instance, which, although well minded as an activist term, um, really is not the main way that people understand their identity. And, and it's it's actually alienating to Spanish speakers often to use that formulation. So um, all that, you know. Again, um, some some well, I mean, don't get me is, wrong. Some language is activism stuff, is important, is, but yeah. But yeah. this is stuff that Slavoj Zizek has said quite a bit as well, basically, in terms of the work. I mean, and I guess, I mean, yeah. and Matt McManus, yeah. I'd be yeah. curious to kind of, I guess, uh, yeah, I'd 
be curious to hear just a few words, I guess, from you in terms of Slavoj Zizek and his overall body of work real fast. I mean, what, what's your impression and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, he's very witty. Um, I really liked his sublime object of ideology, which is probably I think it was his first book released in English. It's it's a, a classic. He repeats kind of the same argument over and over again and in ways that I think in certain respects are increasingly suspect. So what he likes to do is say something that sounds really provocative and then you push into it and then he doesn't really mean it. Like when he was, you know, telling people to vote for Trump and then people asked him, well, did you really want people to vote for Trump? And then he was like, no, really, I obviously didn't want that. And you're like, dude, <laughs> why, why did you say that? Or I don't know, he has a piece that's circulating now that has what to me at first pass looks like transphobic language in it and he's trying to push buttons, but then he's also has some sensible things to say elsewhere in the same piece. So, you know, like it's, um, I think he likes to get attention and a lot of his stuff is very unserious. If you, if you push into it, he's very witty and, and, and yeah. I give him hands down that. And I've seen him speak a few times and he's like a stand-up comedian. He's fabulous. Like, you yeah. know, like he, the audience is, <laughs> he's awkward in a way that is very relatable and the audience, you know, you laugh and, you know, they're, they're not very many academic speakers who, who have that skill, but um, I'm also not as much as I uh, fully appreciate um, Zizek's, uh, critique of certain things, per, for instance, um, capitalism and its ability to um, uh, assimilate resistance or to build in resistance to capitalism. He also has this weird, um, you know, uh, 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 he had this Christians and uh, I forget what his formulation was, but like evangelicals and Marxists against the new age. Uh, he has a lot of anti-European Buddhism stuff in there that I think is really weak. misguided and, okay. and, and weak. Uh, and um, makes it makes an easy fall guy for 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 him because he doesn't he hasn't read he doesn't know what he's talking about basically and in fact there Excellent. there okay, there cool. are ways in which his notion of European quote unquote European Buddhism um, is actually at the heart of a, a kind of intentional blind spot in his Lacanian theory I, I could go into more more detail uh, than that but but I'll just say. Um, you well, know, from the Buddhist so, yeah. the Buddhist studies standpoint, I was because I mean he does he kind of critiques this kind of idea of mindfulness, right? That there's this new agey Buddhism that's out there, and I mean most scholars, I mean, go out and critique that. I mean, somebody like Bernard Fall or somebody like yourself, I mean, they're very aware of these these particular movements and stuff like that, or whether we call it, you know. Uh, modern Buddhism and, and its various flavors in terms of how it, you know, came to North America and stuff like that. There's some ex excellent critiques out there that go out and deconstruct that sort of idea of what Buddhism is. But yet, I mean, it, it doesn't go far enough, like you say, to to go out and address some of the deeper elements of, you know, of what the Buddhist tradition is or, you know, any religious tradition for that matter. So, I mean, that's why I've been much more drawn to, you know, to, to, to you know, you know, scholars like yourself and stuff like that. But I mean, that's cool too, to know. I mean, because I, I haven't heard you talk about that on either other podcasts and stuff like that. And since interviewing Galen and uh, McManus, I've had McManus actually on my podcast twice. Uh, and I even picked his brain a bit in terms of, you know, the idea of, you know, what do you think about metamodernism? And he was like, well, he hadn't read your book yet. I'm trying to get him to, to get around to read it. And I'd love to kind of see the three of you kind of, you know, in dialogue at one point or another, uh, since I just, I just really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. It's amazing. And, uh, uh, it's yeah, to me awesome. it's, should, it's, yeah. it's it's Have it's it's a positive <laughs> it's it's extremely positive in terms of how you guys are framing it in a certain way so i see a lot of hope there uh, yeah, that's great. Um, and thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I get us all on, you know, we should have a big round table. I'm now as down for that, you know, I, oh, cool. I don't, yeah, I, I, as I, I haven't, um, haven't read McManus's work, but I will, you know, I, I will, if we organize, if you organize something, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it out and then I'll be able to say something more, um, 
articulate about articulate about his particular project. Um, yeah, I mean, well, particularly the stuff yeah. on Zizek. I mean, because he's yeah. he falls in very closely within the Zizek camp. Uh, yet he has his obviously. I mean, he's you know he's he's a, a scholar in his own right. He has his own critiques of. But I mean, I just I I would not be able to skate with him, and I would love to see some a guy like you that can skate and you know line up against these guys and have good debate and challenge one another and stuff like that. So I just think it's fantastic. And I mean, you guys are so young too, you know, and you're all taking up your your new academic posts right now. So it's it's for me, it's exciting to see. You know, there's this new cohort of scholars that are taking root in various institutions and universities now and that are really pushing the envelope. And uh, I like I would have done anything to, you know, to have a prof like you while I was completing my degree. So I mean, oh, hats off, you. man. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Okay. Oh, rock on, man. Now, keep it up. Um, I guess and that's I mean, maybe we can end on that as well. I mean, I, what else are you working on right now? What do you got in the pipeline? Um, so I have a short sort of super specialist thing in the pipeline. Um, it's, it was a low hanging fruit, but it's a book called uh, the genealogy of genealogy, which, okay. uh, is about Foucault, Nietzsche race, the history of the idea of genealogy. The, uh, it's basically academics use this word genealogy in a really weird way. So you probably come across this, uh, maybe, uh, in graduate school or what have you, you know, um, uh, you know, Talal Assad, the genealogy of religion or, or genealogies of religion. Well, what does he mean when he's talking about genealogy? And it's a particular uh, notion of the way that history and philosophy relate to each other. And it's a critical, a kind of what we could broadly call a kind of postmodern orientation toward the relationship between history and philosophy. Although some theories of postmodernism wouldn't use that term. But anyway, um, and so I'm trying to criticize that, turn it upon itself and show how it's a a, a vicious circle rather than a virtuous circle. Um, how um, if you do a genealogy of genealogy, it it breaks down and it um, so part. But that's it's a more specialized book. It's a short book. Uh, it's something that's probably mostly going to appeal to other academics. I, I was my wife calls it my knitting book because I was like, when I don't know what else to do, <laughs> I, I like was bang banging away at it. Um, I think I'm at the cusp of um, trying to really think about what kinds of audiences I want to write for. One mm. of the things that I've been really delighted about is the more popular pickup of some of the work in the metamodernism book and also the myth book. I'm not sure whether that means I need to write a popular trade book rather than a more scholarly book. I don't know if I even can do that. If it's, you know, if I'm too heavily deep in the academy to, 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 to find my way out of that or, um, whether it should be, I have a strong interest in, and I've been working on fiction and other, other things as well. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think the, the fourth book though, is going to be this, uh, yeah, this genealogy of genealogy book. I've also a background book I'm researching and writing on power, uh, because okay. I think that, that a lot of, uh, contemporary political discourse is, caught around uh fossilized notions of power that that kind of came to dominance in the 1980s and 90s and weren't very good uh and lead toward the idea that power is dominating but it is also everywhere it is inescapable and there there's no human relationship without power and that turns out to be both analytically a problem because uh as scholars it doesn't let you explain anything with power just every if everything is power then power explains nothing and as activists it doesn't work because it actually undercuts political agency and attempts to change society but that book is a, the power book is a little bit of a ways out i think uh so it's um because i think that the way to solve power anyway it, i have to solve a kind of a bunch of other impossible problems uh, along the way so i'm contributing thoughts toward that but i think in the short run uh i'm i'm writing um close to done with this book on genealogy um and so you know that'll come out in, in the shorter term 
Well, I mean, I look forward to, to seeing that and reading that and keep continuing to keep on reading and following your work, man. It's been really cool well, to, to go out and watch your, your whole evolution now and stuff like that. And uh, uh, yeah, this has been a tremendous amount of fun, man. I appreciate your time too. And uh, yeah, yeah, pleasure. I'll, yeah. I'll definitely Thank be in touch as well. All right. Sounds good. Cheers, man.